You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Brendan Spieth. He's an actor, a jack-of-all-trades. We went to Juilliard together, and he makes me laugh and gives me a lot of hope with his outlook on life. I hope you enjoy the fourth episode of The Compass. Thank you so much for being here. You're so very welcome. So what do you do when you feel yourself going to the dark side as uh, an artist? <laughs> and what in what is the dark side for you, Brendan? It's a lot. I mean, the dark side is a is a is a groovy thing to think about. Uh, I, I was you know, I was just telling Frankie, but the, when I get to the dark side, uh, lately I've been taking more of a Louis C.K. approach to the whole thing. Of I. Uh, the dark side is always something that's going to be looming over the back of my shoulder. And I take that time to actually feel the hurt and pain and suffering of the dark (laughs) side. Like, I mean, sometimes it it comes knocking and you can let it go away, but there's sometimes it comes knocking very hard and is very persistent as, as a Jehovah's witness and will ask you to let him or her in. And sometimes I, most of the times I like to, let it in and just feel my feelings of what I am imagining to be the worst pain of all time. And then, um, I like coping with the dark side by voicing that feeling of like, I let that dark passenger in and then I voice it to a good friend of mine or, you know, my mom or my sister. And it's suddenly all, all the time, a hundred percent of the time, I feel the feelings, I let the dark passenger in, I voice it to someone I love, and it becomes immediately smaller than it Hmm. was before, you know? The imagination takes hold, and it becomes this unsurmountable thing, and then you voice it, and it becomes something so easy to throw away for me. Uh, It's like, there was a Winnie the Pooh movie I used to watch when I was a kid, and they would, they someone like rabbit or piglet <laughs> gets lost i think it's piglet probably is and Pib- piglet gets lost and in this like rock formation that looks like a skull and they get so scared and they're freaking out and they finally get their their courage together and they go into the skull and they 
some other stuff happens, and there's, of course, some heffalumps and woozles and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they <clears throat> conquer this fear, go in, find Piglet, come out, and when they come out of the skull, the they look back and they see it, and it's so small, and they're like, oh my god, I thought this isn't the same place. It used to look like this scary troll devil thing that, wait, this isn't the same place we just went into? And I always think of that image of it becoming smaller once you have let it in, experienced it, voiced it to someone, and it's so easy to shake off after that. Have you found, I know that it, for me, like, there was a time when I didn't realize that I would face the dark side so often as an actor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, and that I, I didn't realize um, for a little bit, I was, began to realize the cycle of like, I've, I feel this anxiety or I feel this doubt mm-hmm. and it will run its course and it will pass. Right. Um, do you feel like you've come to that realization over about voicing it to people and that you have a system for working through it like over time or has this kind of always been your perspective on it? It's come over time because at first, you know, when you leave school and everything's, you have an idea of where you should be at and I feel like a lot of, and especially going like uh, both of us coming from Juilliard, like you have such a high expectation for yourself to come out and like start hitting that pavement and booking shows and and then even shittier than that people actually make that happen like right. you know you felt that coming out of school like there yeah. are some classmates that you have were just booking jobs right out of the gate and you're like fuck it, it's possible it's possible <laughs> i see shit. it <laughs> it's, it's not a fucking pipe dream it's yeah. like people come out and they're you know people are coming out making booking these shows oh my god i got these agents and these managers and this guy wants to talk to me and this guy and then you know you get your folder and it's three pages deep of people who kind of want to see you and you start comparing yourself and that age-old thing of like oh i'm being compared to you know i'm comparing myself to my peers and my classmates which is a dangerous path to go down. And I remember feeling that sadness after school uh, right when everybody got their folders. And, you know, again, mm-hmm. the thing I play in my head is probably not as scary as it was, but I kept seeing, you know, my classmates coming out with stacks of folders and two <laughs> folders full of all of these things, people wanting their headshot. And then when, you know, Kathy Hood gave me my folder, it was legitimately three, three pieces of paper. And feeling inadequate and feeling less than or something I had done wrong and so through the years I have developed this sort of not system but this way of just dealing with that feeling of inadequacy of feeling lesser than or comparing myself to my peers and my classmates and uh and it's something you have to work at and something I continue to work through like Maybe I shouldn't feel my feelings so hard, or maybe I should do it, you know, I should find other outlets for my stress and anxiety and depression, and, you know, you find things that work for you, and whether, like, my girlfriend goes to yoga a lot, and she loves to run, and all of these, like, physical activities, I like to take dance classes uh, right now is my big thing at mm. Ailey. Go and take, like, a dance class, and, you know, Amazing. like, sweating it out. Yeah, it's really great, and, like, you'll find things, and then some things don't work the second time, you know, one thing works another you're just always finding your way, um, but it's an acquired behavior of of facing this gigantic world of rejection and and fear and self doubt and and 
all of these terrible things that you imagine in your head. And again, once you voice them, they kind of dissipate. But once they're in there, it's just very, it's a gigantic thing that seems unsurmountable. But once you're Winnie the Pooh and you leave the skull rock, it is so, so small and it's so minuscule. And I hope that's answering the question. Yeah. Like it's totally, it's it's a, yeah, it's like a thing you keep re relearning of how to deal with that sad little dark side. Well, that's partly why I'm hoping this podcast will be helpful. Is cause <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I like, think it's good just to you, talk about it. Yeah. Cause then you talk about it. Cause once you voice it to friends and especially friends who are in the industry, like they will tell you how unhappy they are. Uh, most 99% of the time, if you talk to an actor friend and you tell them the angst you're feeling of like not getting this audition or not booking that role or feeling like, shit or comparing yourself they have the same problems or they have Mm -hmm. the same fears or the you know uh, the same thoughts and that sense of communion is super important because you're all in this together in a way and the most dangerous thing you can do is not go to someone else or like stay in your own little corner the most helpful thing I do is just talk and hang with people who may have the same feelings or or have had them years before right. at some point mm-hmm. um you mentioned talking to your mom and your sister are they artistic at all or do they you know, um no how do they process <laughs> this strange world they're so that you very, tell them about they're so very <laughs> funny because they're uh, i am the only i'm the only artist who have come out of my family who's I don't think none of my brothers were in a in plays or I think my my uh youngest brother to me like he's the he's almost 40 now um Brian he used to play the piano it's about as good as we get um but my mom used to be a baton twirler my sister has started doing things like gardening and, and she does some pottery which she's terrible at and we'll say that to anyone but you know she has a couple of artistic things but I'm the only one who is really artistically inclined to make it actually a profession. Right. Mm-hmm. But do you find when you talk to them about it, how do they, do they understand where you're coming from? Or are they just totally in the dark, but willing to listen? <laughs> you know, I, I, I am the most lucky human in that all of my parents and close family have been very supportive in my endeavors and not necessarily coming from a point where they can like understand what's going on or you know have you know be like oh yeah I was in this place I don't know they just are so supportive in that like you know when I was writing call letters to be accepted in college and things like that they would read over and want me to they always want the best and they're really groovy to hear my stories and give what input they can and we're all very clear about like okay this is your point of view this is what you think and this is how i'm gonna go about it right they're just really great as being they're just great great listeners my family and they'll listen to it offer what they can and then go through it's just super supportive i think my family has been very like a rock that i feel very steadied by just because they listen i don't think it it's not out of experience it's just because they're good that's people, wonderful you know <laughs> <laughs> Have they gotten to come and see much of your work in the city post school? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, 
Uh, my brother DJ, he lives in Chicago, and he gets to travel a lot for business, so he gets to come and see projects that I've been in and out of through school, and then I, I was fortunate enough to do a play in my hometown, San Antonio, a few years after I graduated, and so my family came and supported then. Uh, my mom has come as many times as she can. She came to this project. Uh, I had done some, I had choreographed some dances at NYU about three years ago, and she came out to see that. Uh, she came out to see um, she came to see a play I was in in Vermont. She, you know, they're very supportive. And, and, and even when they're not there, they are very involved in, like, how's the rehearsal going? We like to talk through, like, uh, different projects that I'm involved. They're very, <laughs> like, they so very want to just, they always pick up where we left off in com- phone conversations of, like, oh, wait, what's going on with this? What's going with, you know, Lesser America? What's happening with band play and those Lost Boys? They're, my mom got to see those Lost Boys. Now she ever asks about is like, when am I going to get that uh, rock, paper, scissors song? You know, she always <laughs> wants that on her iPod. So, yeah, it's been it's been really nice to have, um, especially when my mom comes out, it's really super awesome. It's so great. That's she really great. is just, I could do anything. I could just, like, I could wear a dress and, you know, scream at the top of my lungs for three <laughs> hours and she'll find something beautiful Aww. and amazing about it, so... Well, since we're all kind of, um, since we kind of have to live in New York or L.A., mm-hmm. that's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> it's hard for a lot of our families, I know, to like to yeah. be involved like that. So that's wonderful that she can. Yeah, and they see it as a little treat, you know. They, uh, that's what I like about it. As, as sad as it is to be away from your family, they your day-to-day life is so precious to them. And they, like, my brother... Brian always calls and he's like, have you been to Gray's Papaya? I, can't, I just can't. Like This was maybe five years ago. He had a couple of hot dogs at Gray's Papaya and every time he's always asking like, you going down to Gray's Papaya? Oh my God, if I lived there, I'd take that amazing subway. He like brags about the subway. He's like, I think that's the most amazing thing anybody could have ever invented. Even though it's like the biggest trial and tribulation of our life of like, you know, frustration in the subway. He loves that. And you know, it's a treat to them to come and experience that life. Um, and it's fun to share them, to share that life with them. Yeah. Hmm? Is there anywhere that you, um, do you have like a little secret, well, if it's too secret, then don't share <laughs> A little secret sanctuary in the city. What are some of your favorite places to go when oh, you really want to feel at home and, or if you need to like get a positive attitude again? Oh, so I know like I like to go like hang out in the MoMA sculpture garden and read or something or write in my journal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's so many, there's so many, and they evolve over time. A lot of them always have to do with food for me. Uh, like, I like I have my favorite little restaurant bar. Um, it is called, wow, this is so funny, I can't remember. Uh, it's called Freeman's Alley. You ever mm. been to Freeman's? No. Um, it's, a, it's a restaurant that is off of Rivington Street, and it's in this, like, secret little alley. I don't go there often, but I love to go there when I'm feeling like some, like if I want to reward myself for getting a job or want to have a nice dinner, I go there. Um, A friend of mine opened my eyes to how beautiful it is to go into really big churches in New York City, even though I'm not very religious and neither is she, like just to listen to organ players. That's something I like to do is to like go into a church when they have an organ player playing, just sit in the pews and listen. That's and such a great idea because I, you know, I do that <laughs> if I'm traveling in Europe or so. Of course, I go s- 
see all these beautiful churches, but I never think to go inside in New York City. No, no, and there and, there, and there's so many churches that just have this guy just practicing, and there's nothing happening. Like, pardon me, there's no like sermon mm-hmm. going on, but it's such a vast and beautiful space filled with this amazing instrument that is so you can't like haul an organ around on the subway and busk you know it's a it's an instrument that has been built into the building and it's something about that makes me feel so wonderfully small um and helps me reflect on what's actually going on what what, what, uh, you know makes me work out the things i want to work out yeah yeah um i think of you as kind of a renaissance man since we've graduated school yeah and i know you've got your fingers in all kinds of pies, mm-hmm. literally. Um, <laughs> how? Tell me a little bit about all these different things you've gotten involved in that you've been kind of patchworking your artistic life with. I know you just mentioned food and music, which are both things I would love to talk about. Yes. Oh, so many great things. Uh, I guess the most recent uh, thing that has been a huge part of my life is cooking. Uh, a lot about food. And um, I guess that all started the summer I moved to Brooklyn with our good friend Gabriel Ebert and our other good friend Nathan Charles Miller. Um, I guess I should have said Gabriel Quinn Ebert if we're going to do middle (laughs) names. I'm Brendan Craig Spieth, you know. We all got three names. And anyway, we moved to Bushwick, and we had signed up for a community farm share, a CSA, and we had like all pitched in some money and every week we would get fruits, vegetables, and flowers from this uh, local farm in Long Island. And the first few weeks were really groovy and we were like, oh my God, these vegetables, but after a couple of weeks it keeps coming in and you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with all these veggies and these fruits. Uh, all of these veggies and fruits are coming in. We have this book called The Farmer's Kitchen, which we're trying to like figure out how to cook kohlrabi what is that (laughs) Uh, we're looking through the thing and like how do you keep it all this stuff is going bad and we felt really guilty because some vegetables would just start rotting in our fridge we had to throw Mm. them out and so at the same time all these veggies are pouring in i came off a job in vermont i did my first equity show uh the aliens out there and uh came back and the whole you know age-old question of like all right time to get a job like a side job and instead of waiting tables, I just lied, lied, lied on this interview for a uh, to cook at a bed and breakfast, and um, and they knew I was lying. I'm sure they must have known I was lying uh, about my experience beforehand. I showed up, and I just started like developing menu items just off the top of my head. Uh, Did you uh, have to cook to get the job? Did you have to? Like, no, cook I just a had to sample? describe things that I had cooked in the past, which okay. is like, easy. All right, I have this farm share. You know, I'm cooking all this wild shit already. So, like, you know, that's oh man, that's impressive. What is kohlrabi? <laughs> <laughs> so I'd gotten this job, and I I happened to have a really great resource of my uh, my brother Brian, who actually went to culinary school, oh. asking him questions of like, what kind of knives do I have to have in my bag? I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, he actually went, but he fixes airplanes now, so I cook in kitchens more than he does, which is why, you know, that's just our family. We're just a bunch of ragtag hoodlums, you know. And, uh, you know, from there, I'd cooked for about a year and a half at this bed and breakfast. Uh, I'd gotten my food handler's license. Uh, I'd shadowed a couple of days at other restaurants, this great place called Boqueria. Mm -hmm. Um, I got some experience there just shadowing for one day. 
And then uh, I got another equity gig, and so I got to put that behind and then come back. And then the age-old question of, like, when are you going to get your side job? And so, like, food had already built up my resume, and I'd gotten this beautiful job at uh, this restaurant called Egg in Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, I'm I was, still sad I never visited when you were working there. <laughs> I still have never eaten there. Oh, it's such a fun place. It's such, I mean, the, 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 it, it really was a diamond in the rough to find because I had applied through that job via Craigslist, uh, which is, you know, always a crapshoot. And usually when you go shadow or trail on a restaurant from a Craigslist thing, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. Um, but Egg was looking for a prep cook, which is a very easy, like the lowest of the totem pole uh, to do. And they needed someone specific enough to, like, do the allotted amount of work and the allotted amount of time and the allotted amount of space. And all of it was small. I mean, the space was so, so small and the work was so, so large because they, you know, are feeding so many people every day. Um, Anyway, I'd gotten the job through Egg. Uh, I told the guy who had trailed me, I said, please, please, please give me this job. I really, he's like, you're okay, man. We're all right. We're going to hire you. Don't worry. I've got you. And, um, you know, at that time I had gotten the job at Egg, my agency uh, I was signed with out of school had dropped me via email, uh, which was, yeah, it was a terrible Thanks, time. Like, yeah, and, and it wasn't you. even like, it wasn't even like a subtle thing. Like I opened the email and was like, oh my God, it actually said in the subject heading, Brendan Speed termination. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which, you know, they'd called me afterwards and they were like, oh my God, we were so sorry. This was totally an oversight. And I was like, yeah. Oh no, it was like the draft they had written. Yeah, exactly. Or something they they felt like it was an oversight. I think it was just something that they had like, you know, they have this whole, either way, whatever had happened, they had terminated me via email and it was a terrible, terrible time. And I had gone to that dark place. I had become a permanent resident there, it had felt. (laughs) And so... You know, I get this job, these beautiful people around me cooking this beautiful food. I felt kind of in a very frustrated place with my artistic career. And I just was like, okay, let's just take a break. Uh, I don't have an agent, so nobody's sending me out for auditions. So my life is my life. Let's just see where this goes. And it was a beautiful opportunity, man. What a beautiful opportunity to work. I think, like, my second shift I had worked there uh, was a Saturday brunch, which is always crazy at Egg, and we had lost a line cook. Somebody had quit working the line, which happens, and, you know, we were all frustrated, and usually what happens is, like, one person does two jobs. But at Egg, the owner, uh, George Weld, had just woken up that morning. He's like, hey, I haven't worked the line for five years. I'm going to do it, and just stepped on the (laughs) line and started, you know, uh, he was on the flat top. He was working the flat top like a G. I couldn't believe it. And to see the thing that made me feel so good is to see a guy who didn't need to do that, didn't have to do that, could have, you know, fucked off and let us figure it out, like step up and help us out and feel that sense of camaraderie. It was very similar to what you feel in a theater, to what you feel uh, when you're working with an ensemble on a show or, you know, like how my class related to each other uh, as an ensemble. And so I was so attracted to that sense of camaraderie of like, we all stepped up, we all uh, worked our hardest, and we made some beautiful food. And they taught me a lot about Southern American rustic cooking. Um, And (laughs) 
yeah, I've learned how to like transfer fat, transfer stock, how to braise bacon, how to um, cook chicken, how to break a chicken down, how to use the bones for stock, um, how to responsibly and efficiently use animals to to with cooking with them. And, you know, instead of just like buying chicken breast at the supermarket you're buying a whole chicken and like using every ounce of that animal right. to, to its full potential and how delicious that could all be um such a beautiful beautiful place and their philosophy on cooking and eating and food and community was so like just i and was enveloped in that love you know um uh, and so through working at egg I had known uh, a gal named Emily Simonas who runs this not-for-profit called Space on Rider Farm. Um, it's an artistic residency that houses painters and dancers and writers and actors. Um, she had gotten wind of you know my cooking at Egg, and we were friends beforehand. Uh, and then she poached me to come cook one day in Rider Farm, which then took flight. And then I cooked a month the next year and mm-hmm. then took flight, and I helped them start some of their food program in uh, 2015 and so like through that I guess cooking has kind of like erupted from one little bed and breakfast job to cooking an egg for a little while and then like their head chef poached me to go to their sister restaurant to work at Parish Hall and I learned how to break down ducks and like saw meat (laughs) bones and then we did like pig demonstrations where like Evan is slinging a whole pig on the prep table and we're learning about like loin and chops and like how breaking down an entire animal and like a lot of cool stuff that I'm sure if this was a hundred years ago, we still had radio and podcasts, but if this was a (laughs) hundred years ago, we would all know how to do this stuff, how to preserve all of this meat. And so I had taken that break from acting to learn another skill that I think is very important to living your life as a responsible human, (laughs) like making stock, making food because food is such an important part like even more important than theater is what we eat yeah like because you can't live without eating so why not learn about how to feed yourself in the most nourishing healthy and efficient economical lovely beautiful and artistic way um and food for me still continues to be a way of expressing uh myself and like where i come from um where i've been uh because you think of like mexican traditions of uh i love the idea of the tortilla we talk about the tortilla and how like bread and like uh, i i don't know how to explain it but like i come from texas i'm i'm from san antonio Uh, tacos were given to me from birth and like (laughs) understanding like how using that tortilla to lap up all of the beautifulness that is in an egg or in a meat or in Mm -hmm. a sauce and like I can use my knowledge of my past and things that are important to me like tacos because let's get real (laughs) you know (laughs) I can cook a taco in a very specific way or personal way that tells the story of where I've been um or like I see. Yeah, yeah. I see the storytelling <laughs> link there. Yeah, the storytelling link it. of or or I used to work at a a bar restaurant called Livingston Manor um which was an amazing experience, learning experience um for me uh we were working on how to use the the, the littlest simplest ingredients to feed 
uh, people at a bar. And my friend Maude and I had started um, just researching like bar food. And we came to, I think our staple was the deviled eggs. Deviled eggs, everybody ordered mm-hmm. all the time. And instead of just slapping them on the plate, Maude would show me how to place these eggs and drizzle it with, uh, you know, a balsamic reduction and have this plating and people would get this plate of deviled eggs, which is at like the bar. A, yeah, yeah, at the bar. And they would be mesmerized <laughs> by how beautiful it was and the beautiful presentation of this food. You look at all these colors and it excites your stomach in a be- very amazing way and you eat this food and it becomes a whole experience. We love, I love making deviled eggs. Down, you know? <laughs> what a great uh, little thing. Um, and our pickles, uh, our pickles were featured in New York Magazine at Oh, the my time. goodness. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I didn't know I that. I can say that now. I'm like, uh, my pickles were featured in New York Magazine as, yes. like, a cool... It was for pickles, you know, picklebacks, you know, when you take a shot of whiskey uh-huh. and then pickle juice. They were, like, doing a whole feature on, like, Livingston Manor, just pickleback juice. Uh, but, yeah, our Brian was featured in New York Magazine. That's amazing. It's a cool thing. Um, I love learning about food, and, and everything, I think we'll talk about uh, what I like to do. I've always kept at the forefront of like expressing using these tools to express. And that has kept me happy from going into that dark. Even when you're, when you are using it as a money job. Sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, great. cooking never pays you very well. Even right. if you're the sous chef or the head chef, it's wild how, how little uh, money those people in this industry make. Uh, you know, acting is a whole thing, but cooking, I mean, people work so hard for yeah. $11 an hour. Uh, and I, it breaks my heart because these people who are the dishwashers or who are the busboys work even harder than I did as a prep cook. And they would say, you know, uh, Julio or, or Jesus would tell me, like, uh, you know, I go after this, I clock out, I have an hour to myself, and then I go to another bar oh. and I work a full time dishwashing job there. Jeez. And they have families and everything to support. And, you know, so again, food, <laughs> you know, when you go to, that's how I was making money. It was having this food in front of me and making all of this stuff. And in that, when the chefs or the sous chefs would be like giving you little tips on, on technique or little tips on how you can make the presentation of a dish being expressive, it was a great outlet for sort of that creative angst I had been holding back because I'm not getting auditions. I'm not going out to, you know, I'm not going out and doing plays like some of my classmates. It, it was a really helpful way of just like having another expressive outlet. Yeah. You know. That's wonderful. <laughs> Did you find it kind of a a nice change to be around people who are so immersed in a different community, in a different world? Yeah. Because I yeah. feel like we spend so much of our time around other For- actors, which is great, but it's... Everyone's only obsessed with that world. It's insular. And those issues. But what you the the thing that was cool about working in the kitchen is that a lot of the guys and gals who cooked on the line had passions that they would talk about when we go to the bar. You know, we go to the levee <laughs> <laughs> after work, and we go to the levee and grab uh, a sportsman. And, you know, I'll sit in the back and, you know, this guy named Jawe I cooked with, he would talk about, um, you know, he taught martial arts and he would talk about all of the things in the worlds I didn't know about martial arts and he would get so specific. And then you would go to the other guy, Matt Carmona, and that guy was a writer uh, who, 
who would always recommend books to all of us. And we started a book club. We were reading uh, Confederacy of Dunces for a while. Like he would get the whole, mm. you know, the kitchen to read um, a lot of great stories and a lot of great passions. And it made me feel like they would get excited about, like uh, I had auditioned for The Winter's Tale at the Globe around the time I was cooking an egg. And they called me in the kitchen for this thing. And I, they were saying, you know, we need you for this callback tomorrow. We need you at this time. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm cooking. And Matt Carmona come in, sweep up. He's like, I would love to take your prep shift from you. You know, like it was an exciting thing. We were all trading passions at the time. Yeah. A lot of these guys who either have passion for food or passion for like literature or passion for martial arts, they were all in that thing. And it kept, it kept a nice open world for us to bounce ideas and dreams to each other um and a lot of them some of them a buddy of mine eddie who is uh cooking in chicago right now most talented cook i've ever met in my life and just him to talk about like you know the food he wants to cook and how he wanted to you know fuse two cultures or three or four cultures together and then you know we would share just little things i'd show them like a little monologue or you know, slip them a play, and then Eddie would share me a little uh, menu that he was developing mm. for this food truck. It was just like a, like a little idea chamber of love for these people. So it was working with them outside of our insular community just made me realize how similar we all are in the passions that we all have, um, whether it be, you know, again, for martial arts or cooking or theater plays. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me a little bit about um, music and how that's kind of taken over a lot of the stuff you've been doing, either from playing music or choreographing to music, like since leaving school. Yeah. Like um, you've been creating a lot of your own stuff. Yeah. I, I've been fortunate enough to have given, I've been, after school I was given free time and space. I had nothing to do. And after, you know, 21 years of having your whole life scheduled out for you in classes and English and math, and then it turns into acting and masks and movement and then voice and speech and all of these things that are planned out that you do and you do well, I had nothing. And uh, I saw it at the time as a very big burden that I had to carry of like, oh, shit, fuck, I'm not doing anything. I'm not... My roommates are all doing Broadway plays and doing this, the episode of The Good Wife. What do you mind? What the fuck am I doing? And right. <laughs> and it, it it gave me the the chance of being like, well, what do you want to do, man? What do you want to do? And um, I got the opportunity to choreograph, um, you know, got to work with some dances and choreography through Jesse Perez, mm -hmm. who is an amazing human being and a soul of just magnanimous multituded like what a guy man had brought this <laughs> dance to me and he was like i have this dance i'm going to teach it to you and then you're going to teach it to this cast uh, uh the cast of bomb and gilead that brian murtis and alex harvey and bo williman had brought together to do in a warehouse in sunset park which was Brooklyn. wonderful i remember that yeah what a great time and so i got to spend the night in this warehouse uh for four or five nights and just do this dance and and then through that um, choreography and like gestures and all of that had been an important part of just making work happen. What's what work is there? And through that, Alex Harvey poached me to do some uh, 
stuff at NYU for this play called The Humans Are in Trouble. Um, and I got to do some of my own moves after using, uh, you know, learning Jesse's moves and kind of go into my own body. Um, and then, you know, right now I'm working on a, a, a production of Pure Gint that he's doing uh, for the third year class at NYU. We're doing a couple of that's dances. That's the undergraduate program? Uh, no, that's the, the graduate program. Really? Yeah, third year grads. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. It's, it's a, I it's, didn't realize it was the graduate. Yeah. It's amazing. It's the grads. and Is that open to the public? It yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Y'all are totally invited. Anybody who listens to this, totally invited to see some Pure Gant. Do you know the dates? I do believe it opens September 24th. Good to know. <laughs> and I think it plays throughout that weekend. Um, I could be wrong, though, you know. <laughs> I'm just there <laughs> in the building, man. It's, it's you know, it's Juilliard all over again, just different place. I know. How funny to now be working yeah. at a di- another program that's pretty much exactly the same. <laughs> exactly the same. Exactly and the same. There's such so great, there's such great cats, man. Everybody's so cool. Um, so music has been, I guess I can say, back to the original question of music, I was a musician before I was an actor. Um, I played the trumpet mm. in middle school and learned and loved, loved music. And I wanted to be part of the Lee High School drum line in uh, San Antonio. I wanted to be a... Uh, is that a huge deal in Texas? Like, is that playing in the football games yeah, and all that well, kind of thing? Or? Since I can't play football, like football <laughs> would be where like the, the, the eye on the prize, you know, you want to be quarterback, you wanted to be Nick Fanuzzi you know, throwing the ball uh, at at so many yards, but I couldn't do that. So uh, I wanted to be on the drum line, drum line. And at Lee High School, uh, where I was supposed to go, and then at Churchill High School, uh, where I did go, both drum lines were very, very intense. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be in snare. I wanted to be on the snare drum. Oh, I wanted to play snare drum so bad because, you know, it's so (laughs) fast and so snappy. It was the place to be because, you know, you have to be rigorous on your – rudiments and, and, and such. Uh, and about that time, uh, I had been picked up for drama class. And so I had dropped, I had dropped the whole snare drum thing and gone to drama. Um, and so picked up music, developing this project with Nick Choksi and Frankie Alvarez and, uh, <laughs> Gabriel Ebert and Damon Dono and LB Yost, Melissa Keeveman. Um, you know, we'd all d- developed this project, uh, this band play about uh, this band we had invented called Those Lost Boys. Um, and we started developing it around 2012. And Nick had come to me because he knew I'd played drums and we wanted a drummer for the band. And that project being dropped in our lap just unlocked this little musical beast I had been stowing away for another time and again to play with such great musicians like Elvie and Damon and Nick and Gabe I mean it, it's unreal and so through and being, to be playing drums because yeah, I know you do a lot on guitar and ukulele and all this yeah. stuff but to be doing drums <laughs> that's doing awesome. drums which is like the thing the thing that you want to be doing man you, you to be a drummer is just to be the best of all of those music, <laughs> and you got to be in a band while in a play. In a band, and I would tell them, I would tell, <laughs> I would tell Nick and, and and Gabe, I'd be like, you know, you're letting me live my dream, man. You're letting me live my dream. Like, what do you mean? I was like, be in a fucking band? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like we're in a band. We go to the studio. We would like rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, and you and, and I would go to work. You were getting paid for this project. I'd go to work, and work was sitting behind a drum kit. Uh, what an 
unbelievable feeling of just to sit and that's we're making work happen um you know this project has it, it unlocked that and i had never written a song before we had started uh those lost oh, boys in 2012 yeah i didn't realize that was the first time you had yeah, i mean i'd written stuff with murtis's project kind of and done uh you know some music stuff but i'd never written a song cover to cover with my own like chord oh, progression I love your songs oh thank you they're they're super it, it's given me the skill that i didn't know i could do and i always would tell nick i was like i wish i could write one like you do man oh mm-hmm. man i wish i could write some songs and this has given me the ability to just like sit and write and sketch and record and re-sketch and re-record and put pieces together and think of songs and how I hear them in my head and try to translate them down into how they come out of my mouth um yeah so we had done this we'd gotten this project all of us were songwriters all of us could play the ukulele all of us could do these things so we would switch you know who took the hot seat at what certain point in the play and I think that's what makes the project so fun and beautiful is that everybody gets a chance to add their own little color to the picture yeah their own little voice um yeah and so and that's so i mean that's the thing that everyone wants to do is to create their own work and that was nick's idea and then you guys all yeah kind of made it together wrote it together wrote all the music yeah it kind of you're still gonna be doing it sometime in the future right yeah i know you've, you've done it several times now but you're still kind of moving forward at some point it's like a it's like one of those poems you you someone writes a line and then folds the paper and then someone writes another line and then you unfold the whole thing and you see this beautiful piece it happened that way that nick had an idea that was a trickle down effect that all of us got on board for and then all of us added our own little piece of that poem and it's continually it's something we always work out we're always working out and then this music from trying to accomplish the story of the play we're trying to like pinpoint the timeline of this these musicians uh we've developed like i think it's a white album's worth of music beatles white albums worth of music Uh, i think maybe we're even one more song above that uh we have about like yeah i want to say like close to 30 some odd songs right something like that it's stupid it's stupid how many songs we have and how many songs we haven't even played in the show that are part of the story that Mm. we've built um so yeah lately it's been just loads of music and then through that people are giving me instruments to like look after while they're gone doing a show and they'll just like pawn off these instruments and so now my roommate nate freaks out about just how many god damn (laughs) how many banjos i have a trumpet in my room now band two tenor banjos one five string banjo uh three acoustic guitars a bass guitar a couple of amps it's just like being pawned off i picture your room being like kind of a magical <laughs> junk like junk shop yeah yeah it's like a magical where there junk are shop. secret little things behind I had all to, like, the doors <laughs> pseudo loft my bed because i'm not that hipster anymore but you know i've got like a little pseudo loft and then underneath that loft all is where all the instruments Ooh. all the bodies are you hidden, need to you write know? a play about what's under that bed <laughs> yeah right under the bed yeah the instruments the nasty or a little... short film <laughs> yeah right what's under filming there? the <laughs> But it, 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 that was a beautiful gift that Nick gave to all of us. He, he didn't, not trusted, but more like believed that we all could do it. 
and then it just followed suit. He had this dream in his head about what this play could be and, and wanted these people and brought us all together and like it really just had us all challenge each other to adapt to other voices. It's really it's really quite wild how right. versatile a songwriter we've all become since we have entered this project. Like I can say it for every single band member and Frankie too, like all of us have just become better writers and people because being around each other and like challenging each other to do the things that we know the other one can do. We can dream the other one writing this song and then they do and it's it mm. just it's it's so cool. What a cool thing. No, I love that project. It's so <laughs> inspiring watching you guys make it. Oh so I love that you've been working on so many things mm-hmm. in a lot of different places through a lot of um I assume, you know, working on one thing, someone sees it, someone asks you to do something else. But then I also know the frustration with the agent situation and like the legit auditions. How do you feel like you're navigating between those waters? Like you're having this, a lot of these beautiful artistic experiences and you're paving your own way mm-hmm. on that side. But I'm sure it's frustrating to not have that, the more structured kind of actor life well, with like the business side of it. Have you kind of like come to terms with that being the current reality? Are you less interested in like working with that kind of I don't know what I'm asking. You know, I no, I totally get I actually get what you're asking of like they're they like they working s- within the system as opposed to working without the out, system. Out of the yeah, system. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that's it, a better way to put it. It makes that makes total sense. Like the system of or what I understand of like your agent gives you a call and says, I want you for this audition here at Lincoln Center. Right. Daniel Sweet's going to see you. And he never does. But, like, you know, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Sweet's going to come and see you. And you're going to audition and hopefully book the parts of the thing that are 10% commission. And you can go out to the old globe and do your thing. And that's all fine and dandy. But it let, you know, I, I guess the frustration happens. And I feel inadequate again the darks the dark passenger comes knocking all the time and i think about that like man i'm not you know my roommate nate goes out for auditions it's not the same thing for me i don't get the call i don't get mm-hmm. the breakdowns as as much and uh i was trying to let me see if i can pull it up i trying to tell frankie and uh we, we were looking at this um drawing of a box there's a scientist uh, it's a drawing of a cube and the scientist explains that the cube can be seen from two different angles you look at the cube and you see one cube with the box face paint pointed towards the right of you and then if you look at it another way the the front of the box or cube will be going to the left and it all has to do with perception and this guy talks about flipping between these two between these two points of view yeah and so i think of it as like i've got my frustrated point of view and i've got my holy shit i'm doing things point of view Mm -hmm. and i i understand that it can be flipped that's one thing i try to tell myself all the time is like look back at what you've actually done and look back at what like work you have created and generated and then i try to do a little positive comparison of like artists and athletes and people i respect uh and I look at their paths, and one that I like to talk about is this uh, athlete I love named Danny Green. Danny Green is a uh, 
He's an amazing player, and he's one of the starting five for the San Antonio Spurs. Mm -hmm. And Danny Green used to play for the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James, 2006, I think. He played, and he was on the team, and then he got traded, and Coach Popovich, coach of the San Antonio Spurs, title-winning team, D-leagued <laughs> his ass, put him in the development league after playing for the NBA and getting like NBA money, said, no, 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 wow. you're going to pay cut, you're going to the D-league. you got to figure it out. Not only did he do that, he did that twice. Jeez. Twice to a guy who'd been playing the NBA. And Danny Green was D-League twice, and he went and he worked his ass off, and now he's a starting player and one of the most phenomenal three-point three shooters in the NBA. Hmm. And so I think if Danny Green can like look at his situation and accept the fact that he is in the development league and actually work his ass off, like I can do that. So I think about Danny Green a lot. Um, I also like to look at other artists who have points in their careers that have dipped. Like I look at Tom Waits and, and his whole artistic uh, timeline and how he had, uh, you know, he wrote, Tom Waits wrote a bunch of songs for a bunch of other artists. I don't know if you knew this, but mm -hmm. like he wrote Old 55 on Closing Time and that was covered by the Eagles and made super famous. He also wrote Jersey Girl, uh, which is a Bruce Springsteen song that is super like, rah, rah, rah. And he wrote <laughs> that song. And Tom Waits like stuck so true to his guns uh, that he turned down a deal for Sears. Like Sears wanted to buy a song of his and he said, no, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that guy who you put in a suit and like dress up and X, Y, Z. He stuck so true to who he was and it went into like, you know, like this financial rabbit hole, this whole depressive rabbit hole of like, not being a billboard artist and look at it now i just like to look at things in perspective i guess is the point i'm getting at i like to look at artists who have dropped off the face of the planet and had you know had a developmental career like danny green and like i feel like i'm doing right now and i can look back right now and say like i have done i made that happen i made this happen i you know, I worked for what I wanted to do and it doesn't pay, but who really gives a shit at the end of the day? Like it's a paycheck. I can get that from a bar. I can get that from, you know, teaching a class. Like the paycheck, it doesn't matter. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. As long as I'm doing the things I want to do. That's, that's, that's what matters. I was like, and, and those people inspire me, man. Those people really inspire me. Danny Green inspires me. Jim Houghton inspires mm -hmm. me man what an inspirational human being uh actors man steve buscemi used to be a firefighter uh you know like what the fuck what the fuck who knows who knows yeah. when it's your time and there's stories of actors who don't make it until they're like in their 60s that's true it's a it's a marathon of a career you know and a lot of the time you go into that dark place worrying about where you've been or where you're gonna go but you rarely think about where you are at at that certain point and like, where where am I at now? What am I? What's around me? Who's around me? What's going on? How can I help? Is it as an approach I can? I've always stuck true to, and like when it comes to my involvement with like Lesser America, mm -hmm. that's something that was just around me because Nate Miller was my fucking roommate you know and he's one of the founding members and they were like oh we're putting on this play and we need some people to help build this set you know what is around me what's happening how can i help 
Um, so would I like to get more auditions? Of course. How can I do that? That's all on my own. And like, I, I've, I've fallen out of love with it. And, you know, when I started cooking an egg, like said goodbye and didn't even want to trouble with it. And then, you know, more and more. And especially now, like now it's time for me to, I want to ask the favors I need to ask and like make the things happen mm -hmm. that I need to make happen. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are so supportive. This community in New York City is so supportive that it's been so easy, or not so easy, but it is so easy to just ask, like, what's going on? How can I help? That's Lesser a America, how can I, yeah, yeah, right? You know, like the, the representatives, how can I help? You know, all these people are making great theater. How can I help, it ha help make it happen? Yeah. Um, has helped me keep a positive outlook on the whole bullshit that I don't get called in for work a lot. Um, again, flip flop, flip flop. Yeah. Looking at the cube a different way, I guess. Are there any um, books or pieces of music or things that you find yourself turning to to kind of take yourself out of that dark side or things that you are like, oh, right, this is what's important? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things. Um, albums and things that I read uh, that keep me... Or that you just find yourself like going back to time and time again and it kind of reorients everything i like to yesterday i was uh listening to this old playlist i had um i had it around the time i had auditioned for juilliard and i remembered holy shit the song came on uh from the sufjan stevens album called michigan mm -hmm. and i had listened to the song and i was like I used to listen to this song every audition I ever went into for college. I would listen to that before I would go into it. Um, I think it's called like All the Naysayers Speak Up. Sofiana is someone I go to and Chet Baker. I like to listen to Chet Baker Sings. Have you ever heard that album? Mm -hmm. There's this really amazing um, piece of literature. Uh, it's a preface that... Uh, it's Sidney Michaels who wrote it. It was prefaced to this play Sidney Michaels had written called Dylan. It's about Dylan Thomas. Mm. Anyway, uh, the play is really great, but what's even better is the preface to the play, and it breaks down. Uh, it breaks down every sort of imaginative reason of why we show up to the theater to do what we do and when I was in high school um, I was with your classmate Anthony Wofford mm -hmm. uh, he was a sophomore I was a freshman and we would we used to paint we sweep the theater we'd mop the theater we'd pull up the wings and we'd paint the whole floor black before our uh, contest play part of the year which was like after spring break we were doing a contest play, which in Texas, everything's so <laughs> real. And they're like, yeah, you got to compete with everything. Like the same organization that organizes the football in Texas, like state, they organize the, this drama competition, UAL one act play. Wow. Yeah. It's super competitive. You cut a play down to 40 minutes. I know it sounds like sacrilege, but it's a thing they did. And you would cut down a play 40 minutes and you present it and people would judge it and you would advance or not advance. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny it's funny that year we were doing death of a salesman which we went oh to state goodness. i know right Cut down. <laughs> the 40 minutes which is sacrilege but it was also something that was like 
It taught me a lot, man, about doing the same fucking show. We did the whole, I, uh, our stage manager had took down the notes we'd done it 160 some odd times with all the run-throughs. Because really? we had done it, like, we would run it like oh, twice every day. it was so short. You know, 40 fucking minutes. And we'd go through it and we'd give notes, you know, trying to build it, trying to keep going wow. there. And then you'd go to a competition, of course, put on your makeup. But before any of that shit ever happened, uh, our teacher would have us paint the floor, bring it all down to neutral, and then focus the lights. And he would bring up all the lights to half, bring the house lights down, and we'd look on this empty theater. And he would just read, uh, he would read this preface to Dylan to us. And it's about the, the infinite possibility of an empty space of theater and it's very like peter brook-esque but also like made so many references of like ibsen and shaw and moliere and like would talk about certain things that can exist but do not yet exist in this space of the theater and every now and again like every couple of years or so i'll pull it out of my mm-hmm. i'll pull it out of my folder and i'll read it and i'll cry of course because it's such a beautiful piece but it always connects me to the like that like breath of a space before it becomes something. And I love it because like, I'm sure, I mean, I know that Ibsen didn't know what the fuck he was doing until he did it. You know, Shaw, all these people didn't know that they had this, you know, Arthur Miller didn't know he had death of a salesman in him until he fucking wrote the play, you know? Uh, Same could be for us, man. Mm hmm. I can't Same wait to read it. <laughs> it's a it's a cool yeah preface to Dylan, uh, by Sidney Michaels. It's cool. I'll, I'll try to see if I send you a copy. Um, I'm just more of the ilk of a guy. I'm like a guy who listens to albums over and over and over until you know the needle has worn the groove mm-hmm. out. Um, and I'll go through phases of like you know through undergrad it was all Radiohead. Now it's like all loud and Wainwright, and uh, right now it's this guy named Joe Williams. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you know who Joe Williams is, but no. one of the best tenors of all time. Okay. Uh, used to sing with Count Basie. Count Basie swings and Joe huh. Williams sings. Uh, and right now, I guess if I had to put you in my mind right now, the song I can't stop listening to is a song called It's the Talk of the Town mm. by Joe Williams. Oh! It's on this beautiful album cover. It's got him. It's like in blue. Like there's like some sort of what you would say now, like Instagram filter of blue. You get this blue filter that he's seen through and he's got this amazing turtleneck and he's looking up at the sky and it says, a man ain't supposed to cry. Such a great album. (laughs) Has a a song called It's the Talk of the Town. I cannot stop listening to. My girlfriend like hides the record from me because it's so great. Um, is there anything that you've seen lately that you'd like to recommend? Any plays or friends things? I did walk here. I got off at the Steinway stop because um, I took the wrong train because it's Queens and it confuses me. And I got out at Steinway on the R train and I saw a poster for a new show by this guy named James Three. Okay. James Three is uh, Charlie Chaplin's grandson. Mm. And he's a theater artist and quite kind of around the ilk of like Orlando Pabatoy and like uh, Chris Bay's very clown physical movement. Moni Yakim would lose his shit over this guy. Uh, 
he's he's a physical theater maker. And, and he's making the show, or he's starring in it. Or he's ma- he stars in his shows, and he writes them, and he choreographs them, and like. And this is a play that's happening. Yeah, it's a play he wrote. Um, but the last, I don't, I don't, I didn't remember what it was called because I was just freaking out that he's back because I saw him do this show called Raul, uh, maybe th- I want to say five years, four or five years ago, um, and I'd spent. A ridiculous amount of money to see this show because uh, I was going through this chaplain thing at the time, and uh, it was un unreal what that show was, and it was just him and another guy, and his the other guy was a puppeteer, and he made all these like puppets come to life, and then it was James Theory like playing violin like concert violinist level violin and just doing all of these motions and. He had this great moment, which I'm sure he'll do some something of that ilk in this new show, but um, he had this moment where he's levitating in the theater and spinning around in this black... Everything's black except for him. He's got this headlamp mm. on. He's levitating and flying over the audience. And, of course, you know, very Fuerza Bruta kind of style of, like, what the fuck is actually happening? And then he does this beautiful thing where the lights... He had had this light switched on, and the theater lights showed the apparatus that was making him levitate and flip and turn, and the two dudes who were operating it, and it made it even more magical to me to, like, see this thing, and then he reveals it, and then it was just unbelievable, and I haven't seen the show yet, but his new show at BAM that's going to happen, I think it's September 30th. September 30th it opens. Okay. I, I know I know that. that it would I mean he was just it was I'm glad you told me cuz I'm sure it's like a limited Yeah. thing, right? That's the dream, man. That's mm-hmm. the dream. I I you could you could give me as many TV shows as you want to give me, but like what that guy is doing is is the dream. It's so good. It just makes you forget about everything and you believe in magic in a very real way and even when he reveals the trick it's still a gift of love and uh, it's so wild and the guy mm. I, I, he doesn't even say anything in the whole show I didn't, I just, like, huh. it's all pantomime and his mom who's chaplain's daughter like sews all the costumes oh and, my like, makes goodness all, it's real it's a cool little affair okay, i gotta do yeah, my yeah, research yeah, yeah. james theory That's man amazing. he's unbelievable and he comes every like three or four years uh, to Bam. Okay. The show. Oh my God. He's unbelievable. So good. Brendan, thank you very, very much. You're so very, very welcome. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Where the river leads, I am from these trees. Don't you cut me down. My wobbly knees, and I'm scared to speak. Atop these peaks, my love is a songbird with a tiny beak. I am from the mountain. I am from snow. I am from temple where the winds blow. I am from mountain. I am from snow.
I'm from Temple, where the winds blow. I'm a clock tower boy, time lives within my violin. And if you try to take the water from the lake, you're left with families broken. I am from mountain I am from snow I am from temple Where the winds blow I am from mountain I am from snow from temple where the winds blow and this is my home 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 there are no longer rooms I wrote that song, so I am from Mountain. I wrote that song for, uh, I was teaching with A-Step at a program called RISA um, with a group called IRC, all great people involved in this. Um, but I was filling in for an art class and we had written I am from poems. Um, these kids uh, were refugees from Tibet, Nepal, India, all parts of the world and they just moved to New York City and they were just getting acclimated to the school uh, school system of the United States. And so we wanted them to talk about where they're from, what part, and we were like, well, you're not from, like, I'm from Nepal, I'm from Tibet, no, that's not that. Like, what things remind you of home, like things that would speak to you? And it can be, I'm from Spicy, I'm from these, and they spoke these words of, I am from these things and all of them echoed him. I don't know. It just touched me in a very real way that they had left this place uh, that they call home and all of these images of like temples and, and mountains and snow and spicy foods. Like we all joked about how we're all from spicy because I love spicy foods too. And like, <laughs> But these kids were just speaking from their heart in this language that they barely knew. And uh, it was so pure it was the purest thing uh and i just sat and read the song groovy right thank you for listening to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.